Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Christianity is a revealed religion. And what that means, something we can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3, is that God has made known things that are true about himself in ways, many ways, that we as humans could not otherwise discern. We'd have no ability to understand these things if it weren't for the fact that he made them known through specific communication that he has established. We are able to understand certain things about God, like his existence, his power, and his divine nature, and the things that have been made, as Paul will say in Romans 1, 18-20. But anything beyond this are things that he will have to let us know about for us to understand. And the whole premise of Christianity, in fact, demands that God has invested authority in the message. In Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. The Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, which is good, Jesus, the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, lordship, and his imminent return, therefore uh, has uh, power and authority invested within it. The reason that this message has power is it's because it's true, it's real, that they describe events that happened in Judea and Galilee and then throughout the rest of the Roman world in the first century. It's because these things actually happened that the news is so spectacular and that is so transformative. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, in verse 1, the Hebrew author establishes, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And Second Peter 1 and verse 21, Peter declared that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, and the prophets spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And throughout the scriptures, Throughout the Old Testament, particularly, you hear the exhortation to hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, that's seen all the time in the prophets, even many times in the historical narratives. And the people were to consider that word from Yahweh, which came from a true prophet, to be authoritative. Now, in John 1 and verse 18, we're told that no man has seen God any time. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are given a list of witnesses of Jesus and the resurrection. And that uh, list ends with Paul. And no one has seen Jesus in the resurrection since Paul. So Christians believe that God has all power and authority. And he's given that authority to Jesus, Jesus his son. But our confidence about this is not based on the physically present authority, like, for instance, the police or... Uh, authority figures in politics or things of that sort. Uh, we're to obey those authorities, Romans 13. Uh, we see them all the time. We don't see Jesus, but we still have confidence that he is Lord. And the way we do that is because we believe the testimony of the apostles and their associates about Jesus as the Spirit had given them utterance. That Christians believe that the word of Yahweh came to the prophets and they spoke and wrote by the authority of God. And therefore, it's good for us as Christians to look at what we can understand about authority as it relates to the Spirit and to the Word. To consider what authority is given to the Holy Spirit and how it relates to the Word, what or who the Word is and what that has to do with the authority of the Word, 
and how the authority of the Spirit and the Word relates to Christians today. And to begin with, it's important to recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an abstract entity or a force. That's why Jesus is able to call him the Comforter in John 14, 16-17. He is God. He's reckoned as Yahweh. So in Genesis um, 1, 1 and 2, he's there from before the beginning. The Spirit hovers over the waters. Uh, in Hosea 11, 1, Matthew 2, 15, the word of Yahweh is spoken through the Spirit. Same with Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, and Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. Uh, so, yes, the Holy Spirit is God. He is from the beginning, from before the beginning, and he will always exist. And he's more than just a force. And so if it can be possible to speak in this way, uh, we've got to be careful about this, uh, because this is an easy route to heresy. But the Holy Spirit is most often seen in a subservient position relative to the Father. does not mean there's actual subservience here, but in a subservient position. The Spirit is sent at the Father's initiative. The Spirit speaks the message of the Father. It's interesting that throughout Scripture, there's never a direct address made to the Spirit. There's address to the Father, and there's address to the Son, but not to the Spirit. And it, we get the idea, if we ask the Father the name of the Son, the Spirit will be given, or gifts through the Spirit will be given, or strength of the Spirit will be given. We see it in John 14, 15, 16, um, Ephesians 1, and other passages. Now, the Spirit is a means by which God communicates with people, and He maintains a presence among His people. We already saw in Hebrews 1 and 2 Peter 1, 21, that whenever there's thus says Yahweh throughout the Hebrew Bible, that that's being communicated by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Ephesians 1, 13-15, 2, 20-22, and 1 Peter 2, Christians are sealed in the Holy Spirit, and they've received the Spirit as a quote-unquote down payment of the salvation God will pay in full on the day of resurrection. And Christians individually and collectively are considered the temple of God, the dwelling place for His Spirit. In Ephesians 3, 14-21, uh, it's not just that the Spirit is a source of revelation, but also God, through His Spirit, sends strength uh, into our inner man. If we pray for it. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, we see that there is a sanctification of the Spirit, that the Spirit has a role in sanctifying, likely in equipping the saints to in knowledge and strength to pursue his fruit. In Galatians 5.19-21, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, things of that nature. The Spirit does have his own prerogative, and he prays for saints according to the will of God in Romans 8.26 and 27. Now, Jesus does speak of sending the Spirit when he ascends in John 14, 15, and 16. But in his life, the evangelists speak of Jesus as having been conceived by the Spirit in Matthew 1 and Mark. And then he's also led by the Spirit there in Mark 1 and verse 12, in, driven by the Spirit, no less, uh, and also given power through the Spirit in Luke 4, 1, and 14. And he said himself in Matthew 2, 31, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is in your midst or come among you. Now this easily leads to theological conundrums. Wait a second. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and God the Son. So why would he need to be led by the Spirit or driven by the Spirit especially? What about his own power? Well, perhaps it's an aspect where he uh, had not yet been glorified and given all authority, that he's still in a position of humility according to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But maybe it's also because there's a consistent pattern we see in Scripture. And we see it in a conundrum with the letters 
in Revelation 2 and 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have seven letters, one to each of the churches of Asia Minor that John is writing to. And each begins with a description of its author. And each one of these descriptions, in Revelation 2, 1, 8, 12, 18, 3, 1, 3, 7, 14, the descriptions are uniquely and specifically of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Not about the Father, not about the Spirit. And that's appropriate, because at the beginning of Revelation, in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1, John has seen a vision of Jesus. And Jesus, in Ephesians 1, 23, is the head of the body, which is a church, and is an authority over the churches. What's interesting is that near the end of each letter, Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, 29, 3, 6, 13, and 22, an appeal is made that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we get this conundrum. Who's speaking? Is it Jesus or is it the Spirit? If we're going to answer that question, we need to understand a little bit more about the Word. So in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we said that God spoke through the prophets in Jesus, right? That God has spoken to these people. What was spoken? Well, what was spoken was the Word of God. Where I said, though, hear the Word of Yahweh. Behold, the Word of Yahweh came to me, saying, a constant phrase in the Old Testament. And we saw in 2 Peter 1.21 that the prophets spoke as God gave them utterance and they were moved by the Holy Spirit. John 12 and verse 38, it is said that Jesus fulfilled the words spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Lord's report. Now, that word is not Isaiah's by his own invention. No. Isaiah is moved by the Holy Spirit. Um when he says such things. In Hebrews 2 and verse 2, the Hebrew author says that the word spoken through angels is the law. And what's interesting about that, the Hebrew author then takes the next level and he compares it and says that that law was one thing, but now we have an even greater word, a word heard through Jesus. And this word that we've heard through Jesus has been confirmed by eyewitness testimony. So Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2. For since a message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And so we, we point all these things out to see that the Word of God in the New Testament is a constant reference to what God has made known, the prophets, sure, but really the substance of the gospel message of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. So we see that in Colossians 1.25 and following, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, and many other passages. In Ephesians 6 and verse 17, Paul identifies the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God. And so in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, when we read, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We read that in the same way. So yes, God speaks through his prophets and in Jesus, and the spirit is the means by which that message gets communicated through the prophets and even in Jesus. And so that helps explain that conundrum we just talked about in Revelation 2 and 3. Because yes, it's Jesus who's speaking, but even when Jesus is speaking, 
the word still needs to be mediator communicated through his spirit so the spirit is 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 speaking and jesus is speaking jesus is speaking in them and is communicated through by the spirit and so the authority of the word cannot be disassociated from the spirit because it's the spirit who communicates the word and yet what is the word I mean, again, we've just easily associated it with the message of the prophets and of Jesus as it has been recorded in Scripture. And for good reason. That's the, 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 the testimony of God. It's the message of God. It's the Word of God. And it should be held in such high esteem. And yet, so easy to make it about a book in its pages. But when we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And then in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is the Son who is God, Son of God, God the Son. It's Jesus here. So Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. The Word become flesh. The Word of God. Now, if that was the only passage that suggested it. We could say, eh, that's interesting, and we can move on. But it's not the only time this happens. Later on the Gospel of John... In chapter 6, Jesus is preaching to the people after having fed them bread. And he spoke of himself as the bread of life in verses 26-59. He said that you have to eat his body and drink his blood if they would have life. Now this is a very difficult teaching for them. In fact, most rejected even among his disciples. Uh, but it's maybe because they're not kind of getting the message behind the scenes. Because uh, all of this is really based in, in this exhortation of Moses to Israel in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. So every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh, the word from Yahweh, the word of God, and who is Jesus again? He is the Word made flesh. And you have to eat his body and drink his blood, i.e. you have to consume the Word of God if you would have life. So there's another connection between Jesus as the Word and, and really getting to that message of the Revelation. But how would people live by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God? How is this possible? What's going on here? Well, we have to understand the deep logic of the creation here. So in Psalm 33, the psalmist is praising God, and Psalm 33 declares in verse 6, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all of the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So God spoke and it happened. What did he speak? He spoke his word. And we see in John 1 3, not anything was made that wasn't made through the word, i.e. the word who would become flesh and dwell among us, who is Jesus. 
And in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, in fact, Hebrews author says that the creation continues to be sustained by the word of his power. How is the creation sustained by the word of his power? The creation sustained by the word, which is in, and his power is in that word. The word was God. The word was with God. See, this all works together. And so in Jesus is life, because God holds all life together in his word. So the, in the word is life, and it's in this way that people live by the word of God. That we find sustenance in that word. That that word helps provide constant life for us. Both in the substance of the message, and in the fact that it is God himself. So the word of God is not identified with the spirit, even though it's the spirit who makes the word known. The word of God is identified as the son who becomes flesh as Jesus of Nazareth and dwelt among us and who reigns as Lord to this day. Now, associating Jesus as the word with the word of God from beginning and provides a very different perspective on the whole scriptures. And it really shows a lot of the limitations that are made about the nature of how God has made things known. So God has spoken his word. And it communicates his will and purpose. In that word is life. For humanity, that word is communicated through the Spirit. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, when the Hebrews author says that God has now spoken to us in his Son. And how everything in the faith involves being in Christ, since Christ, as the word, is life. And it is, he is truth. This is really powerful and really important, that that locative there of in Christ. No, you need to literally be in Christ. You need to be in the Word of God because that's where life is and there's no life anywhere else. So we can see that there's really strong association between this Word and the Spirit. That the Word is not just abstract kind of message on a page. That the Word is Jesus. How that all makes sense is difficult to make sense of, but that's what we keep seeing. And the associations keep being made with not just the things Jesus says, but even the things that are revealed in the Torah. That these things are the Word of God. There's life in there because it will become embodied and becomes Jesus. We can see it much more clearly in that way. Now, any discussion of the Spirit, the Word, and authority is going to come to the situation of the modern Christian. It has to. Because many in the world of Christendom um, think that there has been a way to receive some kind of additional revelation or enhanced knowledge through some kind of inspiration. Either there's someone who sits in an authoritative place and makes authoritative pronouncements, or their belief in modern-day apostles or prophets and things of that nature. The problem with that is Jude 1.3, where Jude says that the faith has been delivered once for all to the saints. God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets and now in Jesus his son. The apostles and their associates were inspired as eyewitnesses to make known what they had seen in Jesus. We saw it in Hebrews' letter, Hebrews 2, 2, that there's been attested to in these signs and wonders that it was spoken to as a witness of what uh, these people had seen. Uh, since no one has seen Jesus in the flesh since, only those in that generation could have seen him in the flesh. We're not in a position to make any declarations about it today because all that had been established by Jesus in his life could only be seen by those who saw him in his life. We see in Acts 1, 21, 22, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and 2, and 3, and 4. And so 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10 does work here, where he says that we speak in part, we know in part, we prophesy in part. When the perfect and the complete comes, the partial be done away. Um, there's many ways in which we're expecting the fullness of all things in Christ still. 
But when it comes to what has been made known about his purposes, we have it in its fullness now in what has been made known through the apostles and as their associates and has been preserved in the New Testament. And we have no reason to believe that there would need to be any of these things after that, simply because we now have the message and we can translate it, we can communicate it, we, there's nothing to be added to it, we just apply it, interpret it and apply it to our own circumstances. So we have no reason to expect the Spirit to make anything new known about what God has done in Christ. What God has made known in the Scriptures already equipped enough to equip the man of God for every good work, according to 2 Timothy 3, 15-17. But we do have these power passages about the Word, right? In Romans 1, 16, the Gospel is God's power to salvation. Hebrews 4, 12, the Word of God's living and active. Is that power in ink and pages? No. How does one come to know the word anyway? In Romans 10 and verse 17, is faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, in, in modern times, we have kind of just taken hearing and kind of changed that meaning. It's not just hearing now. It's hearing or reading. And we think about coming to understanding what God has done. It's not just, I have heard somebody tell me about it. It's, I heard somebody tell me about it, and I read about it. What's interesting is that scripture makes a lot of hearing the word and speaking the word. It doesn't make a lot out about reading or studying in the modern sense of the term. It doesn't talk about silent reading. Now, we can explain that just simply through linguistic demands. Uh, as many are aware, Hebrew is a consonantal language. Um, in order to actually make sense of what you're seeing, you actually have to say it out. Uh, that's how you make sense of the symbols on the page. Without saying it out, you really can't make sense of it. Uh, Koine Greek at the time was written all in capitals, in columns, and if they get to the end of the column, they just continue even they're halfway through a word. They were able to do that because the expectation was that somebody was looking at a text and reading it aloud. And so they would figure out through reading aloud where the word divisions would come. That is all true. But... The authors of scripture make a lot more about this than just, oh, hey, look, uh, this is just a quirk of our languages. When we talk about spirit, what's the basic definition of that? In Greek, spirit is pneuma. In Hebrew, it's ruach. It means breath or spirit. Word is logos, which is a spoken thing, a word, a matter, affair, etc. So God breathes out. He pneuma ruach, his breath. He breathes it out, what he speaks. He's speaking his word. It's breathing out of him. It happens and it's steadfast. And what do we see in, in 2 Timothy 3.16? Theonoustos is the word there. All scripture is God-breathed. God breathed it out so we can breathe it in. And from its substance we give light. We get life. So that really brings that metaphor back, right? That we live by every word that proceeds the mouth of God. Think about it. We have breath because God breathed into us the breath of life. So God breathed in the breath of life in a very physical, concrete way. Now he breathes out his word in scripture and we breathe it in when we hear it. Somebody breathes it out in speaking, we breathe it in through hearing. And we cannot separate God from his word any more than we can separate him from what he created. He sustains a creation by the word of his power in Christ. And in the word of God is life. We are sustained in that life. So we must breathe in the word of God, which God breathed out to us. And there's life and power in those words. And it's something that there's something about speaking it out. 
God does still speak. The Holy Spirit still speaks. The apostles still speak. Yes, they've been dead for 2,000 years. But when we stand and we proclaim the words, the words of God, the words of Paul still are speaking. So anytime you've heard a person speak out the word of God as it came through a prophet or in Jesus, you've heard the words of God pronounced. This is why in 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. That is the only way some people will understand, sure. But in general, we are speaking out the words of God. We need to speak out that life so that it gives life. Revelation 22 has those warnings about changing the words. That ink or stream you're taking away from because that's a significant issue when there's life in those words. It's very clear that when we talk about when you've heard somebody speak out the words of Paul, you've heard the word, Paul speaking, or you've heard the words of God, it doesn't mean that the person speaking has become God or has become Paul or has become a prophet. That's not true at all. But where there is God's word, there is power. And anytime those words are spoken, that power is present. And and this may be an uncomfortable extension for some, but the extension works. Whenever Christ is preached, a message consistent with God, what God has made known in Jesus, the power of that message is being empowered from God's Spirit through the Word in Christ. Maybe this is why, this is an interesting passage in Philippians 1, 15-18, where Paul says that there are these people out there that are preaching Christ through envy. They're trying to preach Christ in a way that gets Paul in trouble. But Paul says, in this I rejoice that Christ is preached, whether for good reasons or bad reasons, that Christ is proclaimed. The fact that he can be happy whether it's pre preached in pretense or in truth is because the word of God, which is powerful, is being proclaimed. That some, even though it's being done in pretense, may still hear, may still be transformed by it, may still receive life from it, even if it's not being done sincerely. It's interesting that Acts 19, 13-17, that the Jewish high priest named Sceva has seven sons. And they're trying to wield the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to overcome a demon. The demon says, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And attacks them, overpowers them. And fear comes upon the whole community when they hear this. So there is power in that word proclaimed. There is power in the name of Jesus that has nothing to do with the person using it. The person using it could be a wicked person, but that name still has power when used and spoken in the right context. So there is power in that word. That's why preaching is still important. I mean, honestly, if we were truly consistent about it, if all we need to do is to read to understand, we would just sit around for a couple hours just reading. Why do we still have preaching? Why is it one of those things that God expects to be done? Because... Everyone reading on their own does not sufficiently accomplish God's purposes in his word. That the word needs to be read together, aloud. The word needs to be proclaimed, which means that people are taking what God has said, they're applying it to their current context through appropriate ways of interpretation and application. And when that process is followed properly, and there is a word from Jesus that can be spoken to that culture in that time, that word has power and authority. Again, it has nothing to do with the one speaking it. It does not mean that the one speaking it is now a prophet. It does not mean that they are inspired. It means that there is power in God's word, and we that power is to be channeled and leveraged and used to encourage and to convict and to rebuke, as 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, many other passages say. 
Now, the problem is that when we proclaim the word, we, uh, we're not content to remain in the word. We distort the message. We may add in things or take away things because of the world or culture and things. Wherever we take add to, there's no life in those additions. When we take away, we're hindering people from coming to life. Uh, we need to proclaim the message in its purity, in its fullness, so that there can be life given. So this should not distract us from the life that's ever present in the proclaimed word of God. It has great power in its working. It's effective for its purpose. It does not return to God empty. When his word goes out, it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. So we have no confidence to believe that God is directly speaking through anyone like he did through the prophets and and the apostles and their associates in Jesus. But God does absolutely continue to speak through what he has already spoken in the prophets and in Jesus. And his word as spoken in his spirit still gives that life. That sword of the, the word of God, therefore, is absolutely the sword of the spirit still. And it's living and active. When we hear the word of God breathed out, we breathe in life in God. When we speak out God's message in faithful interpretation and application, we proclaim life in God. And those who hear and obey draw in life from it, and they find that in Christ, who is the word. It all kind of comes back into a harmonious whole. So we have considered authority, the spirit, and the word. The power of that enlightenment thinking is very pernicious in its working. We try to separate out God from his word, just like it tried to separate God out from his creation. But we have seen that the Holy Spirit, as part of God, is empowered to communicate the message of God through the prophets and in Jesus. We have seen that the word of God is God and became flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. That the word is the means by which God has made all things, and man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so thus in the Word, when empowered by God and His Spirit, is life. Whenever we breathe in God's Word, we breathe in life. Whenever we speak out God's Word, in word and deed, we communicate life in God and Christ to others. And that is why we do well to heed the Word of God in Jesus, so that we can find eternal life in Him. I'm so thankful that you've joined us for this. We hope you've been benefited by it. If you have any questions or comments on anything we've talked about, you'd like to talk about these things further, uh, please feel free to reach out and contact us through our website at VenaceChurchOfChrist.org or on social media. Please feel free to share this message on social media, if, if, if you please. And if I can be of any service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at TheVerboVitae.com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.